You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Listen, this is going to be an interesting sermon. So here we go. We're going to start in 1 Samuel and then we're going to read Luke. 1 Samuel. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother, Hannah, used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, Hannah, and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their homes. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature, which is also translated in years, and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And now we have the story of the best parents ever. Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 52. Why don't we stand to our feet for the gospel reading? Now his, being Jesus, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group... They went a day's journey. But then, after a day, not 10 minutes, after a day, they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? You left me. What do you mean, why have I done this to you? You left me in the temple by myself. Why are you yelling at me? She says, behold, your father, which is an interesting phrase for her to use. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, why are you looking for me? Twelve years old. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in favor with God and man. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would disorient us today. Amen. You may be seated. This is supposed to be a throwaway Sunday. This is a Sunday where you're told, statistically, in America, not a lot of people are going to come to church today, you know, have a later service, maybe close today, give the people a break. Give someone a break to give me that advice one more time. This is a weird Sunday. Elder Paul nailed it when he got up here and said, we are in between something old and something new. This is an odd Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the year where after Christmas we geared up mightily, and it's kind of like Mary and Joseph going to Jerusalem like for Passover. It's kind of like our Christmas. Like they, they got ready to go to Jerusalem, and they went for Passover, and they rocked out Passover as best as they could, and then they're so quick to just move on to the next thing that they leave Jesus in the temple. It's ironic to me that churches close today. 
with this text being the text for the day. We did Christmas. Now let's leave and move on to the next thing and forget Jesus on this Sunday. As if my need for a break should remove the praise that he's due. That's enough of that. We do this all the time ourselves. Sometimes it's fun to punch somebody else that you don't know and then bring it back. Just know I love you. I love all of you. I really do. Work with me today. This sermon has to be disorienting to you. This is not going to be nuggets that you can digest. This is not going to be something you can take home and use for Monday. The idea of this text, the idea of this text given on this day is for God to be something other than. Something we can't grapple with, we can't understand, we can't figure out, that leaves us confused in all of the good ways. Because here's the reality. If he doesn't disorient us, then we will be continually oriented to things that are disorienting. If God doesn't make you dizzy, then you will walk too securely in things that should be making you dizzy. Alcohol joke from the holidays, pun aside. When God shows up, he shows up in fire, he shows up in clouds, he ascends and disappears into the heavens. His disciples are constantly misunderstanding him, constantly saying, when are you going to explain these things to us? Constantly saying, we don't understand. Jesus is always saying, why are you questioning in your hearts what I'm talking about? He's always leaving people disoriented. If you went to the Revelation Bible study over the summer, the book of Revelation, the final book in the Bible, is the revelation of Jesus, and it's the most disorienting book in the entire Bible. It leaves your head spinning because this is something God, he doesn't do it to us. He disorients us. Not because he's actively doing it, but because his presence is disorienting. See, this is going to go over like a lead balloon. What is a lead balloon? I don't even know. That doesn't even make sense. Hannah knew where Samuel was. She said... If you give me a son, I'm going to bring him to the temple, and I'm going to leave him there. She knew where he was. She left the temple, and she spent, you know, most of the year home, and then she would go back, and she would be with him, and she would bring him his ephod, and she would give him his, his, uh, his clergy vestments and all the things that he needed to serve in the temple. She knew where he was. It was very ordered. It was very right. Even though she wasn't with him, she wasn't confused. She knew exactly where he was. Mary, who these two texts make Samuel and Jesus seem a lot similar, but Mary also brings Jesus to the temple and gets completely disoriented by him and doesn't know where he is and can't figure out why he's not with the relatives and is frantically searching in a very dangerous city for her 12-year-old son. And let me just remove anybody who's ever taught that he was there for his bar mitzvah. That is not true at all. Number one, there was no such thing as a bar mitzvah at that point in time. And number two, it happens when they're 13, not 12. So that whole teaching is nuts. This was just a normal trip to Jerusalem because it was Passover. And Mary and Joseph forgot their child. Call CPS on Mary and Joseph right now. <laughs> Art program. Like, we got to refer Mary. <laughs> She's disoriented. Hannah's not. Hannah knows exactly what her son was going to be. If you give me a son, notice Hannah, if you give me a son, I will lend him to you to be a priest. She gets pregnant. She lends him to be a priest. Mary's not asking for a kid. Mary's not praying for a son. God says to her, I'm going to give you God. And every confirmation she gets, 
because we live in hindsight, it's so obvious to us. If you're a man in the room, raise your hand. Can you imagine your wife saying, we have to talk. I'm pregnant. We haven't slept together. I didn't cheat on you. It was God. Exactly. Then the only confirmation to Joseph is a dream. Like two nights ago, I had a dream. I was getting chased by an elephant that was eating Fruit Loops. I don't trust my dreams. They're absolutely crazy. I would still think she cheated on me. I had a dream. And then, yes, people come and bring gifts. Two years later, shepherds come and say, you know, we had an encounter. But if you put yourself in the actual scenario, this is very disorienting to Joseph. He's all, he knows he's not the father. And they find Jesus in the temple, and Mary's like, your father and I have been looking for you. And he's like, what? what does this even mean? I think I should be looking for him. I hope I should be looking for him. Still confusing, though. And then his son's like, don't you know I should be about my father's business? We're not in the wood shop. <laughs> you should be saying this back in Bethlehem when we get back to the carpenter's shop. Not here. If I'm Joseph, I'm like, you know what? You two are fine. I'm just going to walk back. I want to forget both of you for three days for a minute. <laughs> Disorienting. She didn't sign up for this. We want a God like Samuel, not a God like Jesus. We want a God who's predictable, who we understand, who works according to the plan that we asked for. Not a God who imposes plans on us and then gives us ambiguous confirmations and we never really know if it's good or not. He spins you around until you're dizzy. Listen to what it says about Jesus. He increased in years. The timeless one increases in years. That makes sense. God is timeless, yes? God doesn't change. But Jesus grew. So God does change. Infant, 12, 30, 33, dead, alive, he changes. He grew in wisdom. The all-knowing one grew in wisdom, which means at one point his wisdom was here, and at another point his wisdom was here, which means here he had wisdom that he didn't have here. But he knows everything. Would somebody like to explain? Me. The worst one. He grew in favor with God. God favored him this much here, and Jesus grew in favor. Which means here, he had more favor with God than he had here. But he's called the beloved with whom I am well pleased. How could he grow in favor? This is disorienting. This isn't going to help you on Monday. I'm not going to give you a nugget. We're going to talk about the mystery of Jesus because here's what I need you to know. If you have a pastor that doesn't wrestle with the Trinity, go to another church. If Jesus is always easy to understand when you hear preaching, leave right now and go to another church. He's not Samuel. He's not John the Baptist. He's not Moses. He's God, and God becoming man is confusing. And if we don't have a God who baffles us, then we don't have a God big enough to untie the knots in our lives that are baffling us also. 
God is what happens with Jesus. God is what happens with Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us, determines the experience of all other creatures. When we look at God in the flesh, when we look at Jesus, we're looking at God as creature. See, God is not in existence. God does not exist. God created existence. He's the author of existence. He's the source of existence. So God had to be something that we don't have a category for prior to existence because he's the one who created existence in the first place. So God stands outside of existence until Mary. Now all of a sudden God exists. Now all of a sudden God is in time and space. This is confusing. This is disorienting, and it should be. But because God becomes creature, he now, in Christ, determines what all creaturely existence is supposed to look like. So everything that happens with Jesus is what God is saying the best human life is. So God in Jesus is saying, when I become human, this is what God as human looks like. He grows. He's not instantly endowed with everything. He progresses. He's in process. So anytime we don't want process, we don't want God. Anytime we want to just get filled now, we want to get filled at the altar, but we don't want to work for the deposit. We're not being like God. Anytime we want supernatural information, but we don't want to learn, we're not being like God. Anytime we want the results of work, but we don't want to work, we're not being like God. Philippians 2, 5 to 8, very popular text. I want everybody here to know, do not take notes. Let the rest of this be an event. Just let this message be an event. Just, just receive it like it's a song without lyrics or music. Just receive this. Just let it, let it disorient you. Don't try, because here's the thing. There are people that I know, that I talk to, that I really listen to this week as I'm preparing for this, that can talk me right off the table. There is, this is pathetic, what I'm about to try to do. It's really sad, and it's not a great attempt to try to describe this because there's people who are just better at doing it, but here's the thing. We all have to be stunned and disoriented by God. If we're looking for orientation all the time, we are not going to find Jesus. He has to disorient us. He has to spin us. He has to make us realize you are something that is totally other than anything I'm used to, and I need God to be that way. I need him to be that way. If you're feeling disoriented now in your life, if you don't know which direction is which, if you're waiting for him to make a way, here's the question, not, God, how do I fix this, but God, what are you doing in my disorientation? Not, how do I get out of it? What are you doing here while I'm disoriented? So just, just let this splatter all over the room. This craziness. We're going to try. Philippians. We're dealing with Jesus. He's 12. So what do, what, do the, what do the writers in the future say of him? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped or more appropriately exploited, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And then one more text, and I'll start to explain a lot. 
Isaiah 9, maybe one of the most famous prophecies for Jesus. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is... For to us a child is... And to us a son is... One more time. For to us a child is... To us a son is... This is the mystery that is what's called the hypostatic union of Christ. His divinity and his humanity meeting in flesh and blood. Isaiah has to prophesy for Jesus in two steps because Jesus has two 100% identities. So Isaiah has to say, for unto you a child is because the humanity of Christ didn't exist and then at birth it started to exist. But then he says, unto you a son is because he's always existed. And so he's given. The child is born but God the Son can only be given because he's always existed. Is that dizzying? I was about to close, but now I'll keep going. When Jesus, when Philippians talks about God or Jesus emptying himself, We hear the word emptying, and so we assume something like when Jesus took on human form, he became less than God. Like, he poured out his godness and became something other than. But this is the mystery of the Trinity. When we hear about emptying, when you empty something, you fill something else. So when God emptied himself into the Son, God was emptying himself, and Jesus was getting full. It says that Jesus emptied himself, but what this means is Jesus as God emptied himself into humanity. So his humanity filled up while he was emptying himself. But here's the mystery of the Trinity. When God pours himself into flesh, if I take one bottle of water and pour it into a bucket, the bottle of water becomes empty. But the Spirit is what allows God to pour himself into humanity, but never lose himself while he's pouring it. So as God pours himself into humanity, the bottle of water that's pouring because of the Spirit is not emptying. We see this with the Elijah's widow. The oil that every time she pours it, there still seems to be oil in the jar. This is a sign of the Trinity. As God pours himself into humanity, Jesus' humanity fills up, but God's divinity doesn't lessen because the Spirit is how God and Jesus pour into each other yet remain themselves. This is how, if we have the Spirit, we can pour ourselves out for our neighbor and not lose our energy, not lose our vitality. It's how, in the Spirit, we can grow older and still have our youth renewed like the eagles because the Spirit is always pouring back everything you're pouring out. So what is the wrong view of Jesus, according to Philippians? I'm going to read this quote. This is the wrong view. Although Messiah Jesus was in the form of God, a status that means the exercise of power, God, power, all-powerful, he acted out of character in a shockingly ungodlike manner, contrary, in fact, to true imperial divinity when he emptied and humbled himself. So the wrong view is saying this. The wrong view is saying that Jesus or that God was once the all-powerful, and then when he poured himself into humanity, he became ungodlike in that he lost that power. That's the wrong view. Here's the right view. Although Messiah Jesus was in the form of God, a status people assume means the exercise of power. He acted in character, 
in a shockingly ungodlike manner, according to normal but misguided human perceptions of divinity, contrary to what people would expect from God, but in fact, in accordance with true divinity, when he emptied and humbled himself. Jesus is what God is like. So God is always like a being that will empty himself into weakness. God becoming weak in the person of Jesus is what God is like. It's how he exercises his power. This is how God flexes his muscles. He becomes a human who's weak. How do we flex ours? The same way? God flexes, shows us the all-powerful six-pack by becoming a weak man who can have his beard pulled out, punched in the face, and die. That is what God is like. He's not becoming less God in that moment. He's showing you who God is and what God is like. That's why when it says he emptied himself, it didn't say he humbled himself. He humbled himself at the cross. But please, hear what I'm saying. It was not humbling for God to become a human. How many have heard pastors, maybe even me, say how humiliating it must have been to be born in a manger? I was kind of upset that I read this after I preached on Christmas Eve. But like Jesus, I'm growing. I'm increasing in wisdom, thank God. He was only humbled at the cross because God doesn't die. That's contrary to his nature. But when he became a baby, it doesn't say he humbled himself. He wasn't denying himself to be born in a manger. He wasn't denying himself to walk around and grow up. He wasn't denying himself to be needy. He wasn't denying himself when he walked around needing to go to the bathroom and catching the flu every once in a while. He was serving. And when God serves, he's not denying himself. He's being himself. Serving at the base level of human existence to the, forgive me, the base people in in humanity, the least of these, (laughs) is what God is like. He is like that. He's not denying himself to serve people who can't serve him back. He's not denying himself to give himself to his betrayer. He's not denying himself to touch the leper and risk getting leprosy. He's not denying himself to do these things. He's not denying himself to teach messages that nobody will listen to. He's not denying himself to love, love, love and get nothing in return. He's not denying himself to keep cleaning the house and have the kids keep messing it up. He's not denying himself to keep making dinner and keep not being appreciated. He's not denying himself to work 60 hours a week and have your boss still criticize you. He's not denying himself. He's being himself. We have to deny ourselves to do that because we're not him. But it is who Jesus is. Maybe the church collectively and maybe us as individuals can one day get to the point we're giving ourselves up for someone else that we don't even know or that won't pay us back is the natural outflow of who we are, and it's not self-denial. Do you have the Play-Doh? I'm going to try to figure this out, how to do this. Play-Doh. I hate when Sophia gets her hands on this. Some people bought it for her for Christmas. Thank you. Thanks for the chore. 
Just kidding. This is humanity. Flesh. Amen. This is humanity flesh. This is what God is like. This is divine God. Here's the thing. Does God change? Does God suffer? Okay. God is everywhere, so he can't go from one location to another. Did Jesus grow? Did Jesus change? Did Jesus suffer? But is Jesus God? This is carnate. This is flesh. This is God. Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father. Okay? How do you see the mark of my finger in this clay? You see the mark of my finger by where the clay is no longer. I pushed clay out of the way, and where there's empty space, you can tell that my, what my finger looks like. So Jesus is the exact imprint of God. So God, who doesn't change, pushes himself into clay. So the fact that Jesus changes is what shows us that God doesn't change. It's the inverse. When you press your hand into clay, you see your handprint by the opposite of the clay, by where you've moved the clay to the opposite of your hand. So when Jesus suffers, we know God doesn't suffer. When Jesus changes, we know God doesn't change. When Jesus goes from one place to another, we know that God is omnipresent. God is revealing himself to us in a way that we can relate to, but also in a way that shows us the kind of life we're supposed to live because Jesus is the kind of life God would live if he became human. He's the imprint of God. He's not the contradiction of God. So listen to this. St. Augustine said this. God would rather not be God than be God without us. Now this is a scary quote that I'm throwing out there because a lot of people could call this idolatry. God would rather not be God than be God without us. Now, in Augustine's defense, he doesn't say God can't be God without us. He says he would rather not be God than be God without us. So somebody could say, well, how do you know that? Because we exist. And God doesn't change. His will is perfect all the time. So the fact that we exist is the proof that God would rather be God, would rather not be God than be God without us. Because if God would rather be God without us, we wouldn't be here. So our existence shows that it was always the will of God to be God over a people. It was never not his will. He always was a God who wanted to be God with humanity because if he didn't and he doesn't change, we wouldn't be here. He didn't change his mind one day talking to himself in the first, second, and third person and say, like, we're bored now. What do we do? Well, we are an I, and I are a we, and all this is confusing. Let's make other people who won't understand us. That's not what happened. We exist because he's always wanted us to. It was always his will that we would exist. Otherwise, we wouldn't. So what does this mean? This is the scandal of the gospel, and I'm proud to say this, and it should make us feel uncomfortable. But God cannot be understood as God apart from our story. 
Apart from what goes on in your home, apart from your genealogy and your family tree and everything about your history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God has chosen to be the kind of God that refuses to be revealed apart from the people's story that he created, which is why in Matthew 1, the gospel of Jesus starts with a genealogy. I come through history. I come through story, not apart from it, not over against it, but with it. So the narrative of your home is part of the narrative of God. Your life is telling the story of God, and he has submitted to the fact that he will not be told apart from our stories. So what story are you telling? What narrative are you telling? What bedtime story is your life telling the next generation? Your life, whether you like it or not, is going to speak of God. What kind of God is it speaking of? Which God is it speaking of? God is all-powerful. He has all options. And in Christ, he chose to live with those options, not using them. See, if Jesus got rid of the options, his human life wouldn't be humble at all. But he always had the options. What does he tell his disciples? I could call on God and he would send 10,000 angels to come rescue me right now. He does with Elijah and Elisha. But he doesn't in Gethsemane. But he can. And he doesn't. So here's what real power looks like. Real power looks like having powerful options and with the choice to choose them, choosing weakness. That's what God is like. The story of Jesus as a 12-year-old is the story that teaches us how to process change and how to process growth. How many people can say in the last five years their lives have changed dramatically? This story teaches you how to deal with that. Am I excited about it right now? Almost at H-E double hockey sticks, but we kept the kids in the room. So we got some restraint, praise the Lord. Yes, I'm excited about it. I wish I could take how I feel and just throw it at you right now. I have a hard time dealing with change. Last two years have been nuts for somebody who doesn't like dealing with change very much. But Jesus meets me as a 12-year-old. I can relate to that. My wife says I act like I'm 12 all the time. I'm just like Jesus most of the time. We have to live life as a doxology, not logically, doxologically. Everything about growth and change has to be processed through worship, not logic. Does change cause loss? Yes. Does it hurt? Yes. Does Jesus, which means does God know what it's like, to have a childhood and then get thrust into adulthood. God knows what that's like. How crazy is that? God knows what it's like to go through puberty. How crazy is that? He knows what it's like to spend most of his life in the wood shop with his dad 
ish, his dad kind of. And then one day leave everything that made sense to go into a ministry that is nothing but harmful and dangerous. You don't think sometimes Jesus was like, every time I took a chisel to that wood, the wood did exactly what I told it to, and now I have these disciples. Let's go back to the wood shop where things make sense. We leave childhood into adulthood. We move. Our families move. Our lives change. There's death. There's birth. And sometimes birth brings change to family dynamics and weddings and all kinds of stuff. In a year and a half, I've done four weddings. I've had three memorial services. Life changes all the time. And this text shows us how God himself processes change and growth. It's one of the most remarkable stories in all of Scripture and one of the most expansive explanations of God in all of Scripture. So what are some inside and outside the edges way to handle change and process growth? Outside the edges. Mary leaves Jesus and finds him and says, why did you do this to us? Again, Jesus is like, I've been thinking the same thing for the last four days. You guys left me in Jerusalem where there's robbers and terrible things. Here's one way we don't process change well. Instead of sitting in the grief of loss, we start to accuse the thing that we perceive caused the loss. And we stop liking it. Just grieve. And take responsibility. But don't blame and don't accuse. Because I promise you, it's never any one thing. Your life will change because God's life changed in Jesus. To want your life to stay the same and to wish that it could always be the way it was is to not be the image of God. Because the image of God goes from infancy to 12, to 30, to 33, to a cross, to an empty tomb, and then ascends into some kind of mystery that we'll see one day. It has to change. Expect change. Don't accuse things that cause change. Be thankful for things that do. Because change is allowing us to be like Jesus. What was Jesus doing as he was growing? He was listening, and he was asking questions. That's how you process change. You listen, and you ask questions. Did Adam and Eve change when they sinned? And what was God's first response to Adam? He asked, where are you? He asked him a question. Questions are how we process change. Listen and ask is how we process change. We talk ahead of our questions. We talk ahead of our understanding when we try, because we're trying to numb ourselves to the grief of the change. We have to stop, listen, and ask questions. Outside the edges. One way that we process change outside the edges is to be too quick to move on to the next thing. So it's like, I have this comfortable life, and oh my God, things are changing, they're changing, they're changing, so let's just get to the next thing. Like, Just get me out of the liminal space into the next thing. And this is what Elder Paul said today when he opened the service for those of you who are on time. Which I do want to say, sidebar, you're all doing a fantastic job starting to get here on time. 
I'm going to call it. I'm not just going to dog on you. I'm going to call it. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Okay. It's the last Sunday of the year. I'm going to preach for four and a half hours today. So. Everyone's like, <laughs> I wish it snowed a little harder. He, Elder Paul said, in between the life I used to have and the life I'm going to have, God shows up in, in the moment of change, in the actual activity of change. Mary and Joseph plan for Passover perfectly. They execute Passover perfectly. And then they're so quick to want to move on to the next thing that they forget the most important thing. But watch this. In the rush to get home, they end up taking a week longer to get home than if they would have slowed down in the first place. Because when they rush and move fast, they forget things and have to backtrack for three days. So moving fast is the sure way to move through life too slow. Trying to hurry up is how you're always late. Because you never remember everything and you have to go back. Remember when we thought we locked the keys in the house after we packed the car and the keys were in the back of the trunk? That was my favorite day. <laughs> it was raining. I had to unpack the trunk. You know, like, I just, you, that's when you realize, well, I don't think I actually got saved yet. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm going to the next altar call I have. Quick to move to the next thing, avoiding the process because the process of change makes you focus on the thing you're losing. And so you just want to hurry up and get to the next phase of life so I can stop thinking about what I'm losing. But look what Jesus does. He embraces convergence. He does exactly what Elder Paul said this morning. Jesus stays in the temple in the new thing and then when it's solidified that that's his new reality, he goes back home, which was the old thing, and then slowly for the rest of his life, inches his way back to the new thing. This is why Jesus himself said a scribe that's ready for the kingdom is like a scribe who takes both the old and the new out of the treasure chest. Jesus didn't just jump from here to here and stay in the temple. He realized, I'm called to the temple now that I've established that, I'm going to ease my way into the new thing. He embraces. He doesn't give up on what he's leaving. He takes as much of it with him as is appropriate and leaves as much of it behind as is appropriate and moves slowly over the next 18 years to the new thing. Slow, not hurrying up. Hurrying up on the one hand is wrong and just being obstinate and not changing on the other hand is wrong, but slowly moving. And finally, outside the edges, assumption-based decision-making and presuming that Jesus was with the relatives, they journeyed another day. Assuming that God is always with the thing that's the most familiar to me. Assuming that I know where my life is. Assuming that I can locate my heart. Assuming that I know what I need to repent of. Having a drag out argument with a friend or a spouse or whatever, and you sit there and say, look, I know what I did wrong. No, you don't. Your sin is not smart enough to know what itself is. You don't know. 
Don't presume. Don't assume everything that's familiar to you is where all of the answers are found. Jesus is always waiting at the place that's supposed to be the most familiar to us. Should I make the cliche? You'll always find him at church. So churches, stop taking Sundays off, please. Because this is where he is. Inside the edges is discernment-based decision-making. Mary pondered these things in her heart. She got so disoriented that she finally said, I'm going to stop trying to figure it out, and I'm going to ponder it here and not here. I'm going to buckle up, and I'm going to go for the ride with this kid. But I'm going to try to figure it out here. I'm letting go mentally of trying to figure this out. Please, to be an exciting, dynamic church, Jesus can, the church is not supposed to be a museum. It's not supposed to be the place where we put on display the best parts of our past that we love so much and just come and observe them. It's supposed to be a garden. Things die and things grow. Things die and things grow. We move on and we move into new things and then we leave them and move on to other things. That is the life of Jesus. I can't say it enough. It's the life of Jesus. Things are going to change. They have to change. Otherwise, we're not walking with the Lord who changed. Jesus changed. He teaches us how to process the change. So the last thing I'll say is this. The last things that I'll say is this. Watch what happens with Joseph. He has to develop self-awareness now because life just changed for him. His 12-year-old son just said, I stayed in Jerusalem and I didn't go back to the shop because I'm supposed to be about my father's business. Joseph is like, I've been waiting for this moment to happen. I was dreading this, this part. Mary says, your father and I have been looking for you. And Jesus says, Mom, I know what you haven't told me. See, Mary saying to Jesus, your father and I are looking for you, shows that Mary hadn't yet told Jesus what happened. And Jesus says, Mom, I know. I'm supposed to be at my father's business in my father's house. I know he's not my dad. And then he goes and he submits to Joseph. If I'm Joseph, I'm like, I'm, I'm not telling him to clean his room. He just said God was his father. This little kid is the son of God. He's supposed to have authority over me. Can you imagine? Jesus' room is a disaster, and Joseph's like, so. <laughs> you know, there's been times where your room looked different than it does now, don't you think? And Jesus is probably like, well, you think, you know. <laughs> Forget it. You ready? You ready? St. Augustine said this, for all of us who have authority in any level, exert your authority like Joseph must have tried to exert his over Jesus. Imagine the person who's under you is the Son of God. How humbly, how gently, and how softly would you exercise that authority? Here's the answer. It wouldn't be an authority of power. It would be the authority that's rooted in serving. 
the only thing Joseph ever could have said that would work is, I'm going to serve him. I'm going to parent him by serving him. Now watch this. Jesus says, I'm the son of God. So now I'm going to do everything you tell me to do. Back the truck up for a minute. God is now submitting to the ones who are supposed to be submitting to him. What does this tell you about God? It's telling you that God is the kind of God who even with all authority will still defer to somebody else and will still allow somebody else to have sway in his life. How many are glad we have sway in God's life? How many are glad he's that down to earth for real? If the one who doesn't need to submit to anyone is willing to be submissive, how much more should we be? Mm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Shut up, Pastor. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We don't need to start 2019 stable. We need to start 2019 dizzy. Dizzy by the goodness of God. Dizzy by the mystery that is the Trinity. Dizzy by the fact. Do you know what this did for me? I'll just share an insight for me. I have to be submissive to Christ. And the church is the body of Christ. Y'all the body of Christ. I have spiritual authority over a part of the body of Christ that actually should have authority over me. Being a pastor is a lot like being Joseph. You're given a gift to lead, but the one you're leading doesn't need you to lead them. The fact that they're letting you lead them is also a gift. And so the only way to lead is to serve. Tore me up. How awkward is this? This is not natural. Here's the thing. I know myself. Every time I climb up here, I'm like, God, you are out of your mind letting me come back up here again. This is crazy. Remember when I forgot my keys in the trunk? Like, I cannot believe he hasn't shut my mouth. Neither can you. It's almost 1130. And we started early. I took out a song. This is nuts, but this is the goodness of God. He's so good, he looks careless. He's so good, it looks like he's not a good steward of his stuff because he just lavishes himself even if it hurts him. Don't give yourself to your betrayer. That's not a good steward of your heart. He throws his heart at his betrayer. It looks careless. It redeems everything. This is the life of God. He's called us to a radically exciting life, but we got to get dizzy. He cannot be palatable. He cannot be digestible. I'm so glad, and I hope that this message is not digestible because the only thing I want you to digest is the bread and the cup that you're about to come to. That anchors us so we can get dizzy. His presence in something we can understand is how we can get anchored so that we can go on this roller coaster with him. Let's stand to our feet. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.